0: Hi, everybody, this is Buzz with a quick note before this podcast begins. When I did the first edit on it, this thing came in at just under one hour and 50 minutes. Now, that's way too long to ask any of you guys to sit in one place, so I've cut it into two pieces, and this is part one of the years 2010 to 2014. You're going to get years 2010 and 2011. I hope you enjoy it. The second part will be next week. On with the podcast. Hello, FC Dallas Curious fans, and welcome to another edition of Third Degree, the podcast. This is episode 61. I am Buzz Carrick, your host for today, the founder of Third Degree, uh not here today as they have been, not been for the uh length of our historic look back podcast. Our usual partners, Peter Welton and Dan Brook. But this is indeed uh episode four of our FC Dallas History Look Back. Today we're gonna be talking about 2010 to 2014. Uh, and just a quick reminder before we get into the show, this uh, podcast is patron supported. Uh, there are no advertisements uh, on the podcast. We'd like to keep it that way. If you like the podcast or if you like anything we do on the blog or the Instagrams or the Twitters or whatever else we do in terms of reporting for Essie Dallas, you can support us at patreon.com slash third degree. And I hope you will choose to do so in whatever capacity you feel appropriate. Our right, last episode, we had Tobias Lopez again come in special. Thanks to him. Uh, that was the last episode of the history. We took a short break from the history to talk to uh, Damon Gochner, the uh, uh, owner of Denton Diablos, who gave us a good in-depth look into um, minor league soccer in the United States in the pandemic time and the impact it's having, which is, I think, a really in-depth good listen if you're interested in that. Uh, and then we did a... Um, a, a podcast on EMLS because it's the only thing that uh, FC Dallas is doing on a competitive level right now. And while that's not my bag per se, I think if you're into the e-gaming, it was a terrific podcast with Dan and uh, uh, the young man whose name I cannot pronounce in gamer speak. That's the FC Dallas. I think it's Ibis nine or something like that is the gamer tag for the guy who plays for FC Dallas. But um, if that's your bag, check it out because I think it was a terrific podcast. All right, we had planned today to have on Wayne McMullen, who is a former Beer Guardians leadership person, has been involved in FC Dallas supporter culture for a long time. He's also the current play-by-play guy for the Denton Diablos. He's re- recently gotten into broadcast. And he's the host of the West Ham is Why We Drink podcast. So if you're into West Ham or supporters culture and, uh, for English football, you should give that a try. But uh, Wayne has had seen some what I would call catastrophic technical issues with his computer, uh, and which involves, as I understand it, buying an entire new computer. So who knows when he'll be back and someday we'll have him back on. So we've gone to the bench and brought in another player that could be a starter in anybody's book. And that is uh, a friend of the podcast, a friend of Third Degree, who's been writing for us on and off for Oh, almost 20 years, probably. He's been involved in supporters culture as well in terms of leadership, and he's one of the founding members of the Brimstone Cup committee. And that is Kevin Lindstrom. Kevin, welcome to the podcast, my friend.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. This should be fun.
0: All right, let's get into the history, Kevin. Now, uh, if you if you listened out there, fans listened to our last podcast, and I'm, I know Kevin did because we talked about it. Absolutely um, from from. In 2009, that was not a good season for FC Dallas. They finished seventh mm-hmm. out of eight teams under Shells Hyman. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point in, in 2010, he's not going into a complete rebuild. Uh, coming out of 2009, they have David Ferreira already on the roster. Jeff Cunningham had won the Golden Boot. Heath Pierce is on the team. Ugo Yemelu is in town. George John's a full-time starter. Daniel Hernandez is in place. Atiba Harris is in place. Dax McCarty has become a starter. Marvin Chavez is in. Dyer Benitez is in. So basically the rebuild has happened already. And Shellis is just looking to tweak the team for 2010 and make some strides forward. But uh, bizarrely over the winter, Kevin, and I'm sure you remember this. Yeah. Dave Vandenberg is let go after he has uh, uh, one of the great assist seasons in club history feeding Jeff Cunningham. Uh, bizarrely, they just let sh- him go for allegedly complaining about Shellis's coaching, of, of all things. Uh, and then FC Dallas doesn't trade him or his rights. They just sit on his rights. And basically, the guy never plays again. Yeah, it was sh- a shocking moment. Frankly, I was I was
1: disappointed in the league as a whole at that time because it's an example of of what was wrong with the structure. You can't just sit on someone's right. I think that happened to a couple players. Ronnie O'Brien, if I remember correctly, got into that a little bit. Um, and Vandenberg was such a phenomenal player that, yeah, I was, if they traded him, whatever, figured something out, that'd be fine. But they didn't, they just kind of let him, frankly, let him rot. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, the only thing I looked at it, just trying to take a step back and look at it objectively is it was moving money from him to other players so that they could have a more balanced team. And I think there's probably some value to that. Um, But yeah, it was an awful situation for uh, Vandenberg and um, it certainly hurt the team in terms of service from the left side.
0: Now, you know, Shellis is is up front and open. If he thinks you suck, he will say you suck to your face. He will cut bait on guys that get in uh, battles with him. He will get rid of them fast. This will come up again. As we go mm-hmm. through this next season and it mm-hmm. came up even before this, when basically he run into troubles with Roschetti, who uh, in the middle of 2009, basically quit on the team after they, and they brought in Danny Hernandez. But anyway, let's move on to 2010 because that's what yeah. we're here to talk about. Uh, and get, aside from getting rid of Dave Vandenberg over the winter, they also draft Zach Lloyd. Uh, he, he, he's an impact player fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not a lot of else that's gets picked that year. That's any good other than Eric Alexander, who was a steal pretty much in the third round. Again, that'll come up a big here in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some other good additions, Kevin, I'm sure you remember Jackson comes in mostly originally thought to be a defender, but he does yeah. play a lot in the, in the midfield. Uh, but the biggest addition coming into 2010, and this is without question in my mind is Kevin Hartman. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because Kansas city, as I, as I stumble over why this deal happened, I'm now remembering Kansas city had him and they failed to re-sign him to a deal and Dallas mm-hmm. trades for his rights basically. And then signs Hartman. And let's real quickly, let's talk about Hartman in 2010 and why this is such a huge addition. He had a 0.62 GAA that season, which is the lowest in FC Dallas history by a long shot. Kevin, it's the only one ever below one in their history and Hartman won player of the month, uh, in that season. And and, and he's only, he only gave up one goal in four games in that month. And he's just one of six players to ever win player of the month. And I don't think you can undersell when you go from ninth place to essentially high up. I don't remember what place it is. We'll get back to it in a minute, high up in the Western conference standings. Mm -hmm. Basically it's all on this one huge, massive addition of Kevin Hartman and goal. Mm, He was a huge part of it. My thought was the transition happened, started as
1: you said, in 2009, right? in ugo you're bringing in danielle giving them a chance to kind of settle in you already have all the other pieces in place and then when you add hartman it's literally the last key foundational point i wouldn't say he was the only reason but he was definitely a keystone part of what took them to another level i think they ended up third in the west but they were clearly one of the best teams in the league
0: yeah and and all those other places, players we had talked about were already in place. This is the yes. one addition as we jump into 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, but 2010, if really in addition to the great play of uh, of Kevin Hartman, which we're going to come back to again more in a minute, um, yeah, it was phenomenal. It was yeah, phenomenal. 2010, really, uh, and I think you'll agree with this, is the season of David Ferreira. MLS Absolutely. MVP, MLS Best Eleven, MLS All Star. He did it all. That year, now Cunningham is scoring the goals, but David is uh, the offensive creator. And 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 to be fair, offensively, he pretty much because remember vandenberg has gone, he's pretty mm-hmm. much carrying that team on his back in a lot of ways, isn't he, David? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, so what I loved about this season as a whole, just to talk about the arc of it, is FC Dallas was very good at working you over eighty minutes and then making the play to win the game or tie the game or get whatever result they needed out of it in the last 10. And David's intelligence, his physical ability to take punishment and his skill all played into that. And I mean, me personally, I'd love to have a discussion between whether that was a better season or Jason Christ's 99 season. Mm. And I think those are the top two in in Dallas history, hands down in terms of the importance to the team and, and how they shaped how the team played.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair shake. I, I might give that Cuttingham's golden boot season where he had like eight assists as well. That's a pretty strong season too. But um, I, I certainly Absolutely. agree that David and, and Christ and and, and I've throw in that third guy. These, this is one of the great seasons. On, if it's not the greatest, it's still one of the greatest uh, in, mm. in FC Dallas history by an individual player. If you want to throw in 2016, that's more of a team for me. That's not going to be in this podcast, but Mauro Diaz and that group, that's more of a balanced team than this team. This team Correct. is a little lopsided because... Other than David, there are two there's only two other players that have even more than three assists. That, <laughs> right. Think about that. And that's Breck Shea, who's just now coming into his own. Yes. And Heath Pierce, who has six, and he's an all-star this season too. <laughs> so right. So other than David, Breck and Heath Pierce are doing quality work. But yeah. you see what I mean when we say, and those are the only two guys that were over three in terms of David carrying the team, and then those two guys offering some contribution. Right. Right. Yeah, I know. I mean, this was definitely David's team,
1: and he basically owned Major League Soccer um, through this team. He let everybody do their part, and he picked his spots and made it count when the time was right.
0: Now, we're going to talk about Heath Pierce some more in a minute, (laughs) but uh, this was as we started to see the emergence of Breck Shea, and I think we all were beginning to see the potential and him mostly as a wide left midfielder or as a left wing shells used both a four or a three, depending on the season or the situation. So um, I, you know, I think we were beginning to see some of the hallmarks of what would make Breck great over the next couple of seasons in this Mm -hmm. year. Oh, absolutely. This was, I had, you know, I
1: tried to peg kind of what was an explosive season for a player emerging season. This was definitely an emerging season for, for Breck. And it was when people started really getting excited that, Hey, the
0: the uh, that tall, lanky kid really had some skill and could do some damage. Yeah, I think I think Breck's emergence is what uh, contributes to some moves that happen after this year's over. But again, like I said, that'll come up as we go on. Absolutely. Uh, in 2010, I think it's pretty fair, and this is probably true of most of Schelts's career. He didn't give a toss about the Open Cup. The, he nope. pretty much played some reserves against DC United in the first round, and they got stomped three to one. Yep. Um, I, I, honestly feel like at the time I felt like this and I look on, feel like this going back. I, I was pretty sure that shells was just happy not to be, have to play those games anymore.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I, as someone who's always loved the nature of the open cup, um, that frustrated me a little bit this season, if I remember correctly, it was so early and it was so random. I want to say it was like a Wednesday in the first couple of months of the season, um, and it was a play-in game, which
0: Dallas yeah, was MLS qualification, play. right? They weren't yeah, straight so, into the tournament.
1: Yeah, so for a variety of reasons, it, of all the ones, this is one that I kind of didn't ping, uh, didn't have too much of a problem with.
0: Yeah, I think I might agree That's with that too. In hindsight, that, that MLS qualification was weird. Shells had a lot of other things going on at that point in the season, anyway. All right, and
1: especially good- as bad as 2009 was, he yes. had to.
0: Things right in 2010. Absolutely. And to be fair, as good as David Ferrer was, we mentioned that he was carrying the offense for the most part. To be honest, mm-hmm. uh, 2010 is actually the season of defense because they only allowed 28 goals, which is the best oh, yeah. in FC Dallas history by six goal margin. Yeah. The normal back four at the time was normal, being the standard most often choice, was Jair Benitez, Hugo Ayamalu, George John, and Zach Lloyd with Daniel Hernandez in front of them, Kevin Hartman behind, and obviously Heath Pierce and Jackson both also figured in the back line at various times. So yeah. you know, knowing what we know about the careers of those, those individuals as a, and as a collective, you can see why, even just on paper, that is a remarkably good defense, and at that time, really young too, as John and Lloyd mm-hmm. are both pretty young and Jackson is too, for that matter.
1: I think you can make a pretty good argument. You have six legitimate MLS starters on defense in that rotation. Um, obviously, Zach was a rookie, so maybe a little bit of a hesitation there, just from a perception standpoint, but clearly the quality was there. So yeah, I mean, that when you put that back six is what I would call it. So your defensive midfield, right. four defenders, and your goalkeeper, I, one of the best in league history, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I think all of those names ended up in our top five rankings list in pretty much every one of those positions. Uh, so it's not surprising that that defense is as quality as it was. And not yeah. surprisingly, Kevin, if you, you remember this, I'm sure that as as good as that defense was, there were a lot of ties in, mm-hmm. in 2010. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> tw- they were they were 12 and 4 and 14 ties. That's, <laughs> yeah, They took a lot of losses and turned them into
1: ties uh, with yes. that defense. Yes, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was saying earlier in terms of they're going to make you work throughout the game, both physically, mentally, tactically, all that stuff. And then wherever they are in that last 10 minutes, if it's if they're behind a goal, they're going to find a way to tie it. If they're tied, they're going to find a way to win it. And um, I I wish I had been able to look it up, but I want to say there was a number of times that season where they scored in the last 10, 15 minutes um, and it really became a trend.
0: Yeah, there's definitely it was definitely a trend. I, I remember feeling like this team was never out of it, you know, no. at, when they would play. Uh, yep. Now, bizarrely, Kev, tw- 2010 is the summer of perhaps the best offensive or maybe even just best summer signing period. And you'll, when I t- say the name, you're going to be like, really? And, and the name is Milton Rodriguez. And you're like, oh, oh. I don't remember him being a great signing, but he had five goals oh, no. and 13 games. That's a remarkable yeah, no. track record for this club from a summer signing. That's remarkable. No, I was I was again at this point in time, I was
1: working for the team. And I remember when he was signed going, OK, is this going to be kind of a king of goals guy I don't know if you remember that from the Metro Stars signing what was it, 97 or something like that mm, where I, I don't, but I'd take your word for it. They, they brought some guy up from, uh, from South America and they called him the king of goals cause he'd scored a ton of goals, but his game just didn't translate to major league soccer. Um, and I so was the Coleman
0: of, uh, of New York rebels.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, well, the Metro stars at the time, but yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I remember thinking, where's this guy going to fall on that? Cause he didn't strike me as, you know, a Carlos Ruiz type player, but, you know, where is he in that universe? And early on, I remember thinking, this guy's doing the work. This guy's doing the things that usually make for success in major league soccer. Um, So, no, I I remember him. And I, I, as a matter of fact, I remember I've got a poster of his um, that I I remember I still have; It's up in my son's room and and I like looking at it from time to time, both because of the year and because of his place in it. Although, obviously, that created some tension with Jeff, which that's a separate story.
0: Yeah. The, one of the things about Cunningham uh, it, it'll this will come up when we get to the playoff section is that mm-hmm. over the course of the season, he began to start less and less and less and and began to be an off-the-bench player. And yet he still led FC Dallas in scoring, despite the fact Mm -hmm. that he was not a starter, which, again, this team was about defense and and that inability of Cunningham to play 90 and the inability for anybody else but Cunningham to score, even though it wasn't starting him. And Atiba Harris was the other option. And eventually they got a Milton Rodriguez, who was a solid signing. But um, regardless, there was definitely a a disconnect-ish in the offensive end of the field compared to the defensive end of the field, certainly. Absolutely. And, you know, in some ways you love being able to bring off someone
1: like uh, Cunningham off the bench and go, yeah, we've been running you ragged for 60 minutes and now he's going to come at you. Yeah, good luck. luck. Um, But they never really got into us into a
0: flow with that as much as I think they could have. They could have. Yeah, that's true. Now, I I went through over the season and I didn't come up with any really significant signature wins, but um, Mm -hmm. uh, FC Dallas does crank it up over the back half of the season after Rodriguez comes in and there's a point at which they win. Um, six straight home games with a win, which was a record at the time. And they went 15 games unbeaten, which is at the time was an MLS and club record. And really the back half mm-hmm. of the season, Kevin, uh, it really just all came together, didn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and for me,
1: this was one of the most magical seasons. It's one of my favorite teams, mostly because of some of the things I've already said, but because they were peaking at the right time. And how many times we've we seen an MLS from the beginning, I mean, from 96 on, that it's the teams that get hot in the second half. I mean, now it's the Seattle move basically or maneuver, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, you know, where they pick up some signing in the middle of the season, they're mid table and next thing you know, they're, they're challenging for the MLS cup by the time it's all over and Dallas was finally doing that. Um, you know, they had a couple of hiccups there at the end, um, but I didn't worry about that too much because there's so much good soccer that we were seeing for such a long stretch. And, and, Yeah, it was. It was phenomenal. Uh, I loved seeing the consistency, the ability to be better than the other team nine times out of 10 in some facet.
0: And uh, you really had to work to beat them. It was it was pretty cool. Now you mentioned a couple of stumbles at the end of the season. And one reason that happened was because of the most bizarre moment of the season for (laughs) me. And it wouldn't be hands down. It wouldn't be the FC Dallas team, the Dallas burn, the whole franchise without some bizarro injury (sighs) to derail things. Right. So, the crazy moment, is, and I know you know what I'm talking about, is absolutely. The, off the dead ball incident when September Kevin,
1: 16. Yeah,
0: yep, absolutely. When Thierry Kevin Henry. Hartman's trying to get a ball ready for a goal kick and Thierry Tierra Henry comes running through and tries to volley it into the stands or something, and, and yeah. Hartman's leg is in the way and yeah. Hartman drops with a strained knee and, and misses yeah. a little bit of action and, and 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 that causes some stumble. And it just is one of the most crazy moments right mm-hmm. at the end of a season. And again, with this franchise and its ability to stumble right, right at the yep. wrong moment. Yep, absolutely. And I mean, you know, as someone who's been here from the beginning, I think that's definitely a
1: top five craziest moments in in team history.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned stumbling. Uh, the, the last two games, they lost on the road to RSL and they lost on the road to L- LA Galaxy. I do finish third in the West, which means, of course, that they get the number one, number. excuse me, the number two seed. Uh, Real Salt Lake in round one. Uh, F- FC Dallas goes down early in game one, but Cunningham uh, ties it. And mm-hmm. then Javier Morales gets a red card in the 49th minute. And then Atiba oh. Harris gets a red card in the <laughs> 88th minute. And one of our favorite bench players and hot post uh, late game uh, off the bench attackers, Eric Avila uh, mm-hmm. steals the game in the final minutes to win game one. Yeah. I, I think if
1: I were to, put a list of my favorite moments in team history, that may be the one. And that includes winning the Open Cup. Wow. That includes 2016. Because here was the thing. Remember the buildup we've been talking about throughout this season? Especially giving up a goal, right, to go down. Still have to go to Salt. At home, the first game was at home. Remember? Oh, was it? Yeah, the first game was at home. The second game was going to be at Salt Lake. Mm. So if you win at home, you've got a problem, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we give up the first goal. It's like, okay, are we going to be the Dallas Burn again? (laughs) Of course they are. Way to give this away. Um, And then obviously Cunningham tied it, and then you got the bizarre red card. It's like, okay. And then, you know, I didn't worry too much about Atiba's red card because we had started to impose ourselves. And this is going to come back in the final. But we had gotten back to what we did, which was imposing ourselves. Um, And then the thing that just really gets me excited is to watch David Ferreira's involvement in the play with Eric so early on near midfield. And then just the way that he bursts into it. (laughs) And it's just like, you know what? I don't care what fate says. I don't <laughs> care what the team is. Screw it. I'm going to have a moment. And it was a moment that, I mean, it was just awesome. It really, and frankly, it set up the win against LA, which obviously we'll get to you know here in a minute. But yeah. that to me was just kind of the crystallizing moment of, this is not the average team. This isn't what we've seen, the team that's found a way, whether it's Calamari or... Uh, a Paul Broom handball in Los Angeles in 99 or whatever crazy thing is going to keep us from being successful. Um, it was no shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> calamari. That, that was the calamari. Calamari. Yeah. Calamar. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, you know, just s- some crazy bizarre thing that's going to impact yeah. things. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, we're not going to let our history define us. And it was a pretty cool moment. Um,
0: so, yeah. It was a good moment. All right. In game two, Dax McCarty scores early, and then FC Dallas holds on for the road when You were correct. And they eliminate the defending champs. They are the defending champs, coached by our old friend Jason Christ, of course, at the time. So in round two, and he was, he was not happy. No, I will <laughs> he was admit, not happy. I think he would admit that there was a little bit of bad blood between Jason and the Hunts with the way his time in Dallas ended. Uh, I, I'm glad to see this is a side note to the history. I'm glad to see that them reach out to him recently with a little bit of the uh, throwback games they've been airing and, and getting him involved. That's a real positive, I think.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, that was one of the tough moments as a fan is to see that conflict because, I mean, on one hand, you know, there's part of it where I didn't take it too seriously because, my God, Jason was one of the most competitive people I've ever met. Um, I got a chance to to, – I got to know him. I don't know if you knew this. I I was actually involved with a minor league team, the Texas Toros, and his wife was working for the team administration, so I kind of got to Mm -hmm. know him a little bit there. Just You you see different sides of people. And, um, you know, I was not surprised at all when he and Garth went to Salt Lake and had success. Not surprised at all. I've been a little surprised he didn't have success after that.
0: Um, well, he got the short end of the stick in New York City and and, the, and he didn't get any support in Orlando. And I, the, true. And not to divulge our history, diverge yeah. our history pod, but when Orlando, you know, he was basically 500 when they let him go and then they didn't win. Yeah. They won no games the rest of that year, which I think is indicative of how good a coach he is. So, But that that's right. a different podcast. Let's let's keep going right. with this one. So in round two, um, the format goes to a knockout style and FC Dallas has the... Tough task of going to L.A. to face the supporter uh, Shield-winning Galaxy. And Dallas proceeds to just stomp the tar out of the Galaxy. Yeah. 3, three nothing on the it road. It was embarrassing. Yeah, with goals by Ferreira, George John, and Marvin Chavez. This is one of the most comprehensive and dominant road wins in franchise history. And it comes against one of the best teams in the history of MLS, the L.A. Galaxy. And I would add unexpected because everybody was expect because, I mean, L.A. was on a tear that year. That's Beckham's L.A., right? Yeah. 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 I mean, they,
1: they they were supposedly destined to be, you know, they were going to win it all. It was very much the David versus Goliath. And um, oh, that's funny. Right. Um, <laughs> that's I remember the joke being made at the time, and it's still true. Yeah. yeah. Um, there have been two games in my life where I went in ex- huge moment, expecting the worst and got the exact opposite. And the other was uh, beating Portugal in Korea um, because we had heard uh, – just luckily right. being in Korea at the game, we had heard through the grapevine that Mathis was injured, that a couple other players weren't going to start. Claudio wasn't going to start. And they were going to have to start Beasley and Donovan. We're like, we're going to get destroyed. And then obviously it turned into like one of the most amazing moments in U.S. history – And uh, this was kind of the corollary for FC Dallas, because I can't remember another game where we weren't expected to do anything but get our teeth kicked in. And instead, we turned it around and and ended up being the team that just kind of said, yeah, um, you can deal with that. It was, yeah, it was it was a great moment. Um, And frankly, at that moment, I I, I was ready for us to win the championship. We were going to play Colorado. Um, this team had shown who they were for pretty much since Milton had joined the team. Um, and I had no reason to believe that they weren't going to do that. And it was, it was just phenomenal. Just phenomenal.
0: Now, of course, Kevin, that win, uh, brings us to the first ever MLS cup in club history. And if you or anyone else has listened to the history of this podcast or know your FC Dallas history, then you know who the opponent's going to be and you know, what's going to happen. It's the damn Colorado Rapids again. And FC Dallas loses to them again in the playoffs. Yeah.
1: I don't understand that.
0: Um,
1: and, And frankly, that was the thing that shocked me the most about this result because over the course of the second half of the season, this team had shown who they were and they weren't going to be defined by who they had been. Um, they weren't going to let fate get in their way. They weren't going to let you know who people thought they were get in the way. They were going to do their thing. It was working, and for a team like Colorado, they should have run them off the pitch. Um,
0: yeah, you're talking about a Rabbits team happened. that finished fifth in the West, and they yeah. only got into the playoffs because of the weird top eight seating that yeah. MLS tried that year, and they proceeded to basically thug FC Dallas out of the game with 16 yep. fouls committed, uh, yep. just hacking David Ferreira to pieces. Uh, David and did and score that was first. A, Sorry, go ahead. Well, and that's another thing that really surprised me because
1: the referee that night was Bartolomo Toledo, and he had traditionally been someone who had protected a player like Ferreira. Yeah. He had given a yellow card when someone had gotten hit. And actually, it wasn't Ferrer. I mean, yes, Ferrer got fouled, but it was Jackson that got fouled out of the game.
0: Well, they had to sub him quite early for sure. That's yeah, yeah,
1: because of fouls. I remember. So I'm there in the end zone watching the game and going, we are not trying to make them work the way we usually do. Granted, the field was a little bit smaller. But again, this is a team that had tried to make you chase them, chase the ball. So that when you got into the 80th minute, you were tired mentally and physically. And that's one of the things that helped them make the winning play so often, right? Yeah. They weren't doing that. And in fact, as phenomenal as that goal was, and oh my gosh, that was just, oh, it was amazing that that goal was brilliant and that David got the chance to score. It was awesome because he deserves to score more than he did. Yeah. But I literally thought at that point in time, that was the worst thing to happen to this team because now they have a false sense of, of confidence. But this game is not going the way they usually do, and this is not the way this team wants to play.
0: Well, they outshot the Rapids seventeen to seven and lost. So, you know, it, it clearly was not a, a game that was going in their favor. I do wonder, in hindsight, Kevin, if this is a thought process I've had looking at the lineup is um, if, if I if I looked at the lineup correctly, Zach Lloyd was did not start at right back. Correct. They went with. Jackson, but when he could have yep. been in the midfield, they could have started Lloyd. And of course, Heath Pierce didn't play. And there was some controversy with him and Shellis uh, that we'll come Absolutely. back to again in a minute about whether he was yep. healthy or not. So there yep. were definitely some issues going on, on the Dallas sideline uh, leading into this game and, and maybe caused a little bit of a disruption.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it was clearly that, it, it, sorry, it was clear that this team was not who they had been. There was something that, I don't know if it was that they, you know, kind of, Fumbled under pressure or just, you know, that was just the one off game they had in a string of good games. Um, but, yeah, at the wrong place at the wrong time, they weren't who they had been for three months. And it ended up
0: being an overtime loss that just. Uh, here's, yeah. here's the question that I always, always come back to when I look back at this era. Why do FC Dallas fans not hate Colorado more than they do? Because they kick the crap out of them in the regular season. <laughs> That's what I think it is, too. Most of the time, they stomp them. It's just the playoffs. And yeah. frankly,
1: unfortunately, FC Dallas fans and Dallas Burn fans have gotten so used to failing in the postseason yeah, that they just don't. But, I mean, I can tell you, me personally, uh, well, let's. Here here's one thing. The thing about the Brimstone Cup happened because both teams hated each other. Both fan groups hated each other. And the fan supporters groups got it. They Without saw what was yeah. going on. And they're like, hey, let's do something that kind of coalesces this. Colorado never had that opposing supporters group that really um, coalesced into something that could be an opposing force. Yeah, um, I mean, now they've developed some things and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm, I'm happy for them because every team should have a supporters group, et cetera. Um, and my God, there were definitely people in Colorado who were trying. Make no mistake. I, I, were, I have good friends up there. Um, I know they were trying as hard as they could, but it never really turned into something that was, um, you know, the kind of, of bile that you had between Chicago and Dallas or, Chicago, or Dallas and Houston um, or even Dallas and Kansas City, uh, frankly, or Dallas and L.A. I mean, there's a number of teams that we don't, we don't have any problem hating who haven't kicked us out of the playoffs nearly as much. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thing that always surprised me um, back when I was just doing the supporters thing before I worked for the team, one of the things I loved doing was road trips and we never ever could get Colorado fans to come to Dallas and they would complain mm-hmm. about how hot it is. And I'm like, I don't care how hot it is. Do you want to support your team or not? And, <laughs> It's it's that kind of you go, you tailgate with the opposing fans. You both have a laugh. You both have a beer. You cheer against each other during the game. And then at the end, you celebrate what you did. It's like, hey, we're able to enjoy soccer. Now, granted, some of that is, you know, the generation of people that lived before MLS came around. Um, But still, I mean, that's a part of supporters culture. And frankly, I think that's part of it is there never was someone on the fan side it was a big enough personality for us to kind of um, hate as much as we hated the players. Um, but yeah, no, they've Colorado has always had a special place in my heart. And if I could design an FC Dallas season, we beat them in either the open cup or the, last <laughs> of the season to win the shield or in MLS cup somewhere in there they get they're you know that whole um you know godfather thing settle all the family business right they are on that list yeah absolutely they're on that list and well uh, rapids hatred
0: aside uh, i we right? do have to, yeah we do have to uh feel good for local boy, Drew Moore, who won his first mm-hmm. MLS Cup and went on to win more MLS Cups, MLS Cups later on. All right. Absolutely. Um, Great guy. This this cup of two Western teams, a matter of fact, two a little further down, the conference Western teams, basically caused MLS to change their playoff structure so that you wouldn't have yep. that happen again, which yep. brings us uh, onto the future and to 2011. Now... Uh,
1: well, before we get to 2011... Oh, okay, we go the ahead. ...the craziness that was the night after MLS Cup. Go ahead. Remember, we just gotten kicked in the shorts because we lost to Colorado when we shouldn't have, and then before any of the fans got home, we found out we'd lost Dax McCarty for nothing.
0: Oh, was that before you even got home? Yeah. Well, you're getting ahead of yourself. Before we're, most of the gonna, fans gonna, got home, we're going to cover that here in the next little stretch. That's sure, but up. that's a but
1: that's a part of 2010.
0: Uh, that's technically, I suppose this it is cup. kind of.
1: I mean, yeah, it's the transition of 2011. Yeah. I guess but that very much was a part of the MLS Cup experience for me and I think mm-hmm. for a lot of fans because it, it literally was, what are you doing? This guy just had a phenomenal season. We just had our best season ever. He was frankly the reason why you could give David the keys to the car because he would clean up the messes and make an attractive play every once in a while if David was Dove recovered.
0: I, mean, I, hadn't, he, I hadn't thought of it in terms of you guys still coming back from the Cup when it happened. that's uh, oh yeah, That's an interesting way to think of it. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it was,
1: it was a part of the trip because yeah. by the time we got home, he was gone.
0: Well, that was the first thing we were going to talk about in 2011. Uh, in just a second. Let me set it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. In, in 2011, things start to turn sour on Shells Hyman. We mentioned um, a little bit of a disconnect with Heath Pierce, which we're going to come back to in a second. But um, the draft is basically a bust. They draft Bobby Warshaw, who doesn't really contribute very much. Uh, Nice guy, but yeah, nice guy, but doesn't contribute. And and as to why that is, you know, he has a book about it and you can read about it if you care. Um, Several other players leave like Dario Sala leaves and Jeff Cunningham leaves. But this is the first most important bullet, Kevin, and you already brought it up is that insanely they leave Dax McCarty exposed in the expansion draft in order to to protect Eric Alexander. Um, And I went back and looked at the articles on our website at the time and they talked about the fact that uh, they had multiple teams that were interested in taking Eric Alexander and they thought, I think that Dax's contract, which was considerably larger than Eric's Alexander's would protect him. Plus Dak earlier in his career had gotten into it with Shellis a little bit, although I think by this time he was recovered and they had a good relationship. Um, And some of the heat here falls on Barry Gorman a little bit, but Mm -hmm. um, bizarrely, um. After Dax gets picked, and, with the, and you and I and everyone else that saw the exposure list were like, "crap, Dax is gone." He was. He was picked uh, number one, and the whole thing. And then they pull back Daniel Hernandez, who they had left exposed because he was a thousand years old. And Atiba right. Harris gets picked, so they lose like two of the first four picks are the Dallas players, which underlines how poorly they protected their roster. Now, granted, yeah. when you go to MLS Cup, you got a pretty good roster, but. As you say, exposing Dax McCarty in hindsight for a guy that went on to play, what, another 12 seasons and is still playing in Major League Soccer? Yeah,
1: Yeah. won at at least one shield with New York.
0: Yeah. I mean, he
1: he was just getting to where he was a, I don't know, necessarily all-star MLS player, but damn sure right in that next tier in terms of he had proven he could be a quality, high-end MLS player. And don't get me wrong. His salary was going to be bigger. The escalators, all that other stuff. I I understood the math of it, but that's where other GMs find a way to trade him. Yeah. Look, how do we find a way to get value for this player? Right. Um, and instead you give him away for free and you can't even say, well, you know, at least we got whatever for it. Right. You know, a a bag of baseballs and, and a bag of cash or something. We didn't even get that.
0: Yeah. I put some of that on Barry Gorman, who was the technical director at the time. But let me tell you a funny side story of unintended consequences here with this exposing Dax McCarty in favor of Eric Alexander. By the time they get to August of 2011, Eric Alexander gets traded late this season for Jeremy Hall, who Dallas had coveted for quite some time. They tried to get him before. Now, Hall comes in. He's basically a bust. And by November, now, this is like a two months later, by November 2011, they trade Hall to Toronto for a second round pick in 2013. Now, that pick they used on, wait for it, <laughs> Ryan Hollingshead. Oh, my god!" gosh. So, because Ryan Hollingshead slipped to the second round because he, he was going to take that sabbatical. Year off, right? yeah. So... Dax McCarty's exposure leads to Ryan said playing for FC Dallas. So, just a side note on a change of un- chain of un- events and unintended consequences, <laughs> how sometimes you get where you are, not because you plan to. Right,
1: right. No, and I mean,
0: uh, I remind me when he comes on board. Well, he doesn't come in until 2014, you know? So the right, payoff, right. of course, is way down the road. And obviously yeah. like five mistakes happen that led <laughs> to getting Ryan Holly's head. So it's like, yeah. it's just funny how sometimes things work out, but let's go right, back yeah. to, let's go Absolutely. back to 2011, which is where we are in our history. And yeah. as crazy as leaving Dax unprotected is they protect Heath Pierce and then pretty much instantly trade him to Chivas USA for allocation money, Basically, because between MLS Cup and the start of 2011, he's mouthing off on Twitter about Shellis and about he's hurt or not hurt. And uh, you may have forgotten this. I had forgotten until I looked up mm-hmm. the articles. The club made him cl- close down his Twitter account. I don't even remember that. Oh, um, I did not remember that. Yeah. And so there's a obviously, I think by the time they do the expansion draft, they probably know that they're going to move him on. And right. so they protect him because he has so much value. So so that expansion draft was complicated, and Heath Pierce, as short of the time as he he was here, no doubt though, Kevin, excellent, excellent player, and I I wish they had kept him.
1: Yes, but I mean, it was obvious that whether, and I remember thinking this at the time, um, whether he was really injured or what the dynamic was with Shellis or whatever, um, I remember thinking that it was a, a, a relationship that wasn't going anywhere constructively. Um, so that was the right play, Uh, frankly, my sense at the time, and I'm not saying this because i heard anything while I was inside. This is just generally, you know, looking at the situation. Shellis is not someone to put up with someone. No. Having an injury that they can play through maybe and not even trying. I'm not saying that's exactly what Heath was doing, but I think that's the way Shellis perceived it. And... You know, at the same time, I mean, by the time you get to the end of the season, you've gotten the crap kicked out of you if you're an MLS player. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, for all I know, Heath was legitimately injured, shouldn't have been playing, would have been risking serious injury. Um, you know, what was that character in uh, was it um, Friday Night Lights, the running back that mm. – Played and ended up playing, you know, and he had a torn meniscus and it got worse and he never played again or something like that. Um, you know, what if that's what Keith was dealing with, you know, something yeah. along those lines? So, I, you know, again, that's a situation where I think they got sideways because Shellis viewed the way you deal with injuries differently than Heath did. And I mean, Heath was a fringe U.S. national team player, so he had a reason For to sure. protect his body, right?
0: Yeah, um. Well, so yeah. I, don't, I don't begrudge Shellis or any coach for that matter getting rid of players that he's not getting along with. It's not working out right. with. Now it happens to have been Vandenberg and Heath Pearson and perhaps Dax McCarty and you know. Shellis, as many guys as hate playing for Shellis, like Bobby Warshaw. There's guys that love playing for Shellis, like Ugo mm-hmm. and and Daniel Hernandez. He's obviously a love hate kind of coach, and mm-hmm. you know it's his team, and you know and and we can be in hindsight we can be critical, and clearly some mistakes were made. I lay some of them on Barry Gorman as well. Shellis, however, mm-hmm. in the end, probably at that point, even though Gary Gorman was TD, Shellis probably had the power, so it's still a lot of it's on Shellis. But there are some good moves in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. Ricardo Villar comes in, who was a solid, if spectacular oh, ad. Phenomenal. Yeah, solid player. Uh, Mikel Galindo. Unfortunately,
1: we had to use him way too much. But yeah, he
0: had to play a lot. You know, um, Mikhail Galindo comes in from Chivas USA. Not a terrible yeah. pickup. Yeah. Funnily enough, they have to get Andrew J- Jacobson from DC United basically to fill the hole of Dax McCarty being unprotected and allowed, allowed to go. Yeah. You know, yeah. But uh, the best move, Kevin, of 2011, and I don't think there's any question that this is true, is the signing of Fabian Castillo, who was essentially, we're going to say, found by Oscar Pereja. Now, uh, Fabio's peak comes later, but at 18 years old, this was one of the first huge um, prospect-type signings we've seen in club history. Absolutely. And I mean, on my list, I had him and Zach Lloyd
1: as emerging this season. And absolutely, I mean, the best pure left winger I think the team's ever had in terms of raw talent and unopposable skill.
0: Yeah, he had pace that no one could match. Now, 2011, of course, is uh, on the positive side. We'll get to the negative in a second. On the positive side, 2011 is the year of Breck 11 yes. goals and four assists from the left flank, left wing. This is a legitimate MLS MVP caliber season. He doesn't win it, of course, but he's legitimately in the conversation. He's also a most all-star at MLS best 11. This is peak Shea when he was one of the most dangerous wingers, if not the most dangerous winger in the league. And all the noise about moves to Europe started to happen and he broke into the national team.
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely. And it was... It was wonderful to see just because he was so youthful. He was so happy with the way he played. Um, but in kind of a Ronnie O'Brien kind of way, just kind of that evil, feral grin of, I'm going to do something that you're not going to like, and I'm going to have fun doing it, and the fans are going to love it. That was just kind of his style. It was it was really a joy to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I had him on the explosion in this season, and he definitely exploded in ways that um, – my God, if, if David had only been able to.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he played the way he was in life. Free spirit, yes. off the cuff, artistic, yes. you know, yes. a great, great player. And that season was such a joy to watch him. But as you say, yeah. Kevin, the, the the negative side of 20, 2011 is, of course, David Ferrer's broken uh, ankle in the sixth yeah. game of the season when yeah. Vancouver's Jonathan Leathers, screw that guy, uh, tackles David and breaks his ankle.
1: And I, I, for the life of me, I still don't understand why that wasn't a red card. And I, I, there's a lot of reasons why I should soft sell this as much as possible. But at the end of the day, it's from behind the cleats are exposed before you even make contact, it screams red card. And this is after all the indications that, you know, Hey, you've got to protect players, blah, blah, blah. And if I remember correctly, there were two or three other major injuries, Javier Morales and maybe a couple others. Um, kind of within a one or two week period. And David, David was one of them. Um,
0: and I just, I remember being furious. Um, yeah, I mean, injuries happen to everybody, every team in the yeah. league, right, Kev? But David was, he was their yeah. talisman. He was such the pivotal yeah. piece beyond, yeah. beyond anyone else's single season. He was so much the key for this club in, in this era of time. Yeah. And I mean, you can go through and find probably
1: a handful of players over every era of, of Major League Soccer, whether it's Jaime Moreno and Marco Echeverri or Peter Novak or whatever. Um, he was, along with Javi Morales at that point in time, like the creativeness that was in MLS and the fact that it got taken away was, was crushing for the league, not just for FC Dallas, but obviously... Yeah, I mean, frankly, the the success that Breck had, despite David not being on there, um, was pretty amazing.
0: Imagine David had been around. Yeah, exactly. So, As we mentioned, Kevin, the season started going south. Uh, But on the other hand, and this just shows you how the world works, 2011 is the year of the club's best, arguable best CONCACAF Champions League run. Uh, in, in round yes. one, they face Alancia, which is an El-, El Salvadorian team, and they win 2-0 in aggregate. And, the, and the, the the second round, the next round, is the most important Champions mm-hmm. League game in FC Dallas history when they become the first MLS side to win a game in Mexico, beating yep. Pumas down in uh, on their home turf on a Marvin Chavez game winner. This is a landmark win in franchise history. Absolutely. And it was a huge moment. I loved it.
1: Uh, as a matter of fact, um, random story, but I ended up uh, going on our honeymoon uh, a little bit later after that and was wearing an FC Dallas jersey and ran into someone who was wearing a Pumas jersey. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> I just grabbed the shield and winked at him and he gave me a dirty look and walked <laughs> away. It was like, yes, sir. We beat you on your turf. There's yeah. no excuses this time.
0: Yeah. First MLS yeah. in New Mexico. red letter yeah. day. So yep. that one. Yeah. You yeah, know, I mean, I'm,
1: I'm hoping at some point there's an MLS team that wins it all. Yeah. So say that was the beginning and now here's the culmination of that. But I mean, nice. that's years ago. Yeah. So, but yeah, it was a breakthrough moment. I remember a lot of people talking about it. Um, it was very intense game. It was very much a tense game. Uh, every moment mattered. And, and frankly, I was really proud of the way the team um, stayed focused and found a way to get it done.
0: Unfortunately, FCD didn't get out of their group because they won only mm-hmm. one other game, and that was against Toronto. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the The biggest debacle of that Champions League run was against Taro FC, which yes. is a Panamanian team. Which you, yes. on paper you would think FC Dallas was handled, but they they whacked Dallas five three, <laughs> which is yeah. Uh, that kind of broke the club's spirit, both in terms of the Champions League and even just in terms of the season. That that was a that was a tough tough run after that, that Taro win uh, loss. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's something I've never really understood. You have a team from the United States, whether it's the national team or a club team playing, especially one of those teams like Panama, Trinidad and Tobago, Costa Rica, where they've had enough success, you know, they've got some good players, Blas Perez, et cetera. Um, You know, whether you're dealing with a club team or a, a national team, if you're playing Panama, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, Costa Rica, they've had enough success. They've gotten enough talent that if you give them an opportunity, they're motivated enough to beat you. And I, I remember the team organizing a trip for fans to go down and I definitely got the sense that there was a lot of, oh, we got this in the bag. I'm like, no, we don't. You have to bring a killer instinct every game. And yeah, sometimes you're going to play alliance or however you pronounce it. I apologize. I've just butchered that. Um, But there are going to be other times where you're going to play Taro, and you're going to get your teeth kicked in if you don't
0: bring your A-game. And we didn't. And it cost us. Yeah, in the Champions League, uh, any team you're playing, except maybe a Mexican team, it's their biggest game of the year, and the Mexican teams are really good. So it's always going to be difficult. Um, Home, road, it doesn't matter. They're going to bring their A game. Now, when you combine the Champions League, uh, the weight of just playing in it and the losses to Taro and the loss of David Ferrer, the, the back end of the season starts to go south, and they finish on a 3-7-1 run, which is not very good. And they fall to fourth place in the West, which ought to tell you that how good a start they actually had. That They still finished to fin- managed to finish fourth in the West. And, Kevin, they had an astounding 52 points, which is yeah. remarkable for 52 points to be fourth place because I went back and looked at the standings, and... Uh, the top four teams in the West had more points than everybody in the East. It was a completely unbalanced uh, yeah. Western conference that year. It was just a staggeringly good conference.
1: Yeah, it, it was.
0: And I remember thinking I was I was really kind of
1: torn at the time because the team still had talent, right? But they felt like they were burned out, whether it was the travel or yeah. the injuries or whether opposing teams had fig- figured out how to kind of play Ricardo. Um you know, the reality was by the time they got to the playoffs, they just didn't have a lot left in the tank
0: and they couldn't get up to, if I remember correctly, was it the Red Bulls? New deal? York Red Bulls. It was a single game elimination in Frisco, but um, yeah. they did crash out to an two scoreline. And as you say, like a, a, we kicked off 2011 talking about, this is when it starts to go downhill for Shellis. And at, and mm-hmm. you rightly say that over the course of this season, it started to go down and go South. And honestly, This is a big what-if year because we've talked about it the whole season. If you don't lose David Ferreira, what does that team do? I mean, 52 points when you finish on 3-7-1. I mean, that's do a win in Mexico in the Champions League without David Ferreira. I mean, that's there's some big what-ifs on this team. Uh, But when you lose a guy like David Ferreira, you just know this season's in the end going to go downhill.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it had been a good replacement for Dax... Which, Andrew Jacobson was not a bad player. Solid, he, solid. He, you yeah. know, I mean, he wasn't a phenomenal player, but he also wasn't trash, right? Right, right. The one who who contributed, he scored a few goals here and there. Um, but he really did the dirty work of, of cleaning things up around, and unfortunately, when it was uh, Ricardo, there just wasn't enough creativity, and and he had to do too much work. But, um you know so that could have been a good move but yeah with david that easily could have been a return to uh mls cup it just wasn't um and they couldn't even yeah. poor team from a really poor east and yeah. it was
0: frustrating Very it frustrating. was it was a frustrating finish All right, everybody, that's the end of part one. As usual, if you enjoyed this, please consider contributing to our cause at patreon.com slash third degree. I hope you enjoyed the first two years of the 2010 to 2014 run. We'll be back next week with part two, which is 2012 through 2014. And uh, we'll we'll finish off this podcast with some uh, more fantastic history jaunts with our good friend, Kevin Lindstrom. We hope you'll tune in then. See you next week.